0: namaste yogis and friends i'm kino mcgregor
1: and i'm tim feldman and we would like to welcome you to miami life centers podcast
0: hi everyone and thanks for joining i hope you all had a lovely holiday let's get started with the opening prayer so if you'll bring your hands together Vinde Sundar Shita Swatma Sundar Swatma Sukava Bode Sukava Bode Nishre Yase Nishre Yase samsara hala hala samsara hala, hala. moha shantiye moha shantiye abahu abahu purushakaram purushakaram shankachakrasi shankachak Harinam, Harinam, Sahasra Shirasam, Sahasra Shirasam, shwetam, shwetam, Pranamami, Pranamami, Patanjalim, come down and I'd like you for a moment before we begin to just reflect on the difference in the feeling in your mind say before the opening prayer to now maybe there was a bit of arriving that needed to happen and there's always a sense of arriving that disturbs our sense of calm you know Probably many of you drove or caught a ride over and there may have been a parking issue or a scramble to get in, a quick changeover between classes. So just notice how even a small act of presence, sounding OM together, going through the traditional opening prayer changes the quality of your presence. And I would actually wager to say that that small change in presence is pretty much the whole reason that we practice. And that that small change is the beginning of many, many changes that bring us more into a sense of aliveness, into a sense of dropping down under the network of thoughts that are always seem to be present inside our minds. And this network of thoughts is so much of what we identify with as the I, you know? I am happy, I am stressed out, I am really full from eating too much food. Maybe a lot of you are feeling that now, you know? So we think about these things, I am. And the the whole phrasing of I am is a definition of what's called in Sanskrit, I mean, the asmita, the ego. And the ego is something that is, a, is created out of a, a, a desire for permanence in the experience of the impermanent world. So what that means in plain speak is that the notion of I am is a grasping towards identity, a desire for the experience of things which arise in past like our thoughts, our emotions, our temporary experiences. There's a sort of rebellion inside of us that says, I know I'm more than this. Like I know I'm more than my sadness. I know I'm more than my pain. I know I'm more than this discomfort I feel right now. So then in in, in a rebellion against that, we grasp towards I am this and I am that. And then this kind of creates a cage, a box that we can sometimes Uh, live inside of and many of you probably have identifications like that so um, many people who are highly educated so if you've been to graduate school and you have either a master's degree or a PhD you identify with being someone who's highly educated so you feel I am highly educated and if you have and some of you are like yes I am yes I am highly educated and some of you who are very good drivers you know and you feel like I drive very well you know you feel like I'm a good driver and then when someone else is not a good driver then disturbs your sense of, you know, self. And that happens, unfortunately, quite often here in South Florida. Um, <laughs> so, so we have these notions of I, right? I am highly educated. I am wealthy or I am poor, you know? I am a uh, Identified with various ethnic groups, so you can identify with your ethnicity. You can identify with your cultural history. You can identify with your nation state and say, "I am, you know, a United States citizen," or "I desire to be a United States city citizen," or "I'm a German citizen," or "I am a Singaporean citizen," or for wherever, you know, wherever you hail from in the world. And this is another identity. And the reason that I'm talking about identity is because these are some things that we, as operational sort of beings in the world take to be very solid and true and we so often let these identities define us. I came from this background, my parents had this much money, I, you know, I was raised uh, in a broken home, my, I, my, my single mom raised me, you know? I'm an orphan, I'm adopted. You know? And so we have these identities which are sometimes very limiting. And we, we generate a kind of attachment to the false sense of self. And then that creates a box that we live in. And this is something we all do. No matter how evolved you are in the world of yoga, there will always be some I that we hold on to. I have it as well. I recently joined a short Vipassana meditation course and I've been sitting um, Vipassana meditation for almost 20 years, a little bit less than I've been practicing yoga. And the three days that I spent in this course were I felt just enough time for me to let go of my ego. And there were so many thoughts that I had. I'd identified with myself as a leader in the spiritual community, a leader in the world of yoga. I'd identified with myself as an entrepreneur. I'd identified with myself as, you know, um, someone with a particular political affiliation and that caused me great pain over the last two years. And I've (laughs) identified with various other senses of I. And I suffered so much because of that. And in those three days, I realized I'm none of that. And it sort of brought me back to the notion of of who is I. And, And not only did I see that within myself, but I saw this Question and this cage of I reflected in so many other people around me Not only in the meditation course, but then what was so overwhelming for me was to leave Concentrated spiritual practice and then return to the world and to see everybody operating everyone in the whole world all all sentient beings existing within some confinement by defining themselves in circumstantial situations For example, think about the last time that you felt anger, that you were upset about something and how immersed you may have been in that feeling of anger and how identified you were with perhaps being justified in your anger, being righteous in your anger and lacking the distance to realize, well, I'm not anger, like that's not me. But at the same time, all those notions of I lock us down in it. So I remember walking on the streets of Chicago, which is the first city I visited after this meditation retreat, and being overwhelmed with so many beings operating in this paradigm of I am this and I am that and I am you know uh, I, I have this type of job and I have this type of political affiliation and I'm a citizen or I'm not a citizen I have this color skin and these color eyes and letting that define so much of existence and the overwhelming misery and bondage of that So we are here today in this yoga practice not to simply stretch the body. We are here today in this yoga practice not simply to get more flexible, although those are wonderful byproducts of the yoga practice. The purpose and the intention of spiritual practice is to break the bondage of I. So we no longer are defined by thoughts, body, um, emotions, and all of the other sensory feedback that may come in through the world around us. Because as soon as we have these notions of I am, you know, I am this flexible. And, and I know some of you are yoga teachers that are here. And, and I, I know that sometimes yoga teachers in particular fall into one particular trap. I'm a yoga teacher. I should be more flexible, you know? <laughs> I should be better at this. I should be pressing up into handstands 25 times in the morning. And then, and then we have this I am a yoga teacher. So then there are all of these necessary things that come in after that, you know? I shouldn't be mad right now because I am a yoga teacher. I shouldn't be anxious because I'm a yoga teacher. Or if you're just practicing, then you think, I'm a yoga student, I should be better at this already. I should have changed my diet already. I should have solar panels on my house. And I should, you know, drive an electric car. And I should never use plastic anymore. And, you know, then you use a plastic straw and you're guilty for three days. You're like, oh. So maybe you're not there yet. Maybe that's my particular thing. So so when we think about this world of I, Uh, we have to understand that we're here to break that chain. We're here to break the chain of, of I. and, and, And you need that experience. I can tell you you're not your body. I can tell you you're not your thoughts. It is true. Just like I can tell the sky, the sky is not the clouds. And you can see that logically. There's clouds and there's sky. But you look up and it's a montage, like a beautiful painting, and we lump it all together. And unfortunately, we do the same thing with our experience of life. We have our thoughts, our emotions, and our body, and the interaction with the sensory world. And we define this as I. And we are here to break that chain. We are here to define I by no standards in the material world. In fact, we're here to break the illusion of an I at all. So as soon as we have the notion of individuality and we believe in the permanence and the reality of individuality, then this is what creates division between us. When we see others as separate, and we see you and I and us versus them, and this begins to be the modality and operation from which we interact with other beings. Those are, you think like that, you're not my friend. You look like that, therefore you don't belong here with me. As soon as we operate within these paradigms of separation, of division, then we're operating from a a sort of collective and communal experience of I. A really great example of this is watching sports. I'm not a huge sports fan, I have to say. I really respect people that are, have devoted their lives to sports. But uh, my parents were really, really big football fans when I was growing up. So I may have a little residual childhood trauma that I need to process <laughs> around that. So it might be why I'm not that interested in watching sports these days. But by all means, if you love sports, I'm not trying to knock that in any way. But, uh, but so what I'm saying here is this, in trying to use the notion of watching sports as the large manifestation of the social eye. Think about the last time you either watched a sports game yourself or the last time you watched other people watching a sports game, which is even more interesting, right? So what happens? People get really... I remember this from my childhood. My parents would invite a bunch of, of their, what they call their football friends over, and um, they would spend the entire Sunday eating and gathering around a large television set while various uh, uh, men played the American football. And, and then what they would involve themselves in is alcohol consumption, food consumption, and yelling at the television, (laughs) you know? And all the obscenities that I was not allowed to say as a child were thrown at that television set, you know? Um, and, And I just remember, at the end of the day, there would be this immense elation or this immense dejection based on whether their identified teams won or lost, and there was this, I feel great, why, we won. And I was like, we won? What did you do, you know? I sat there, and I ate guacamole, and I yelled at the television, so we won. And then I thought, oh, wonderful. And then there's so, everyone's so sad, so dejected. What happened? We lost you know, what happened, you sat there, you ate guacamole, and you yelled at the television set, exactly, you did the same thing, but then there's that collective I, we won, Uh, we lost, and then then it's because of the identification, so you suffer, or you feel pleasure, and it's this, and, and then this, you know, it's funny in a football game, but it's not funny when we identify as a nation state, and we start wars based on that paradigm, when we exclude others who don't fall into the we, and then we launch a war against them, or we exclude them from our sense of, of of self right so the notion here is to practice until the point where you soften the edges of your I, so that the notion and the distinction of the self which is again the asmita in sanskrit the notion of i i am ness and when that softens so we're willing to at least entertain a crack in the veneer of ego so we understand well Well, if I'm not that, well, what am I? And that question is for you to answer. So the who am I, right? Who am I? Who am I if I'm not this thought? That's your question to answer, your question to experience, to sit and really think about who is I? Am I my sadness? Well, no, because sometimes you're sad and sometimes you're not. And then you have to think about another question, am I my body? you know now this is starting to happen to me lately and for some of you this has maybe already happened and for those of you this hasn't happened, happened yet it's coming soon you will look in the mirror and be confused by new items that have appeared on your face <laughs> <laughs> For example, you will notice new wrinkles that have appeared and you'll notice gray hairs where there were no such gray hairs. And it will be almost shocking to you because you may not feel as though you've aged, but you will look in the mirror and you will think, what is this body that is now there? It used to look differently, but I feel so young you know and so then this question really starts to understand you really start to uh, start to think about am i my body no and the reason why it's almost a shock when we experience external changes the I that is the witnessing consciousness so pure consciousness is eternal we have in in sanskrit the word for the spirit the spark of the eternal spirit which is called purusha and purusha is eternal changeless an experience of being that is outside of time And when you gaze even for a moment into your own eyes in the mirror, there's a hint of that watching consciousness, the spark of the eternal, which is the spirit. And that's the part of you that is confused, you know, because it knows instinctively, I can't be that wrinkle. Why why am I wrinkled? You know, (laughs) I am beyond wrinkles. And I'm not saying this as a, as a rejection of aging by any means, and, and this is an interesting kind of distinction that I think is important for any spiritual practitioner to contemplate. On the one hand, we have the lofty experience of total immersion, which is the experience of oneness, the experience that you are truly every being. And that is the answer to any temporary feelings of separation. So instead of saying you know, I that the suffering of another being has nothing to do with you, the notion of breaking the bonds of I is to personalize the suffering of every sentient being. So that when you look in the eyes of a small child who maybe doesn't look like you, maybe doesn't come from your culture, your heritage, your economic background, you see not that you want to help that child out of pity, but you see that you are that child that is suffering. Offering, that there is no difference. That that is in fact you, and then that that's this experience of oneness, which is the high, lofty goal of the ecstasy of the spiritual path. It's not a selfish path where you end up saying, "Well, now I have bliss and it's all mine." You know, that's um, that's it, It's not like we keep bliss in a VIP room next to the crystal, right? So that's the champagne. If those you, I walked by a bottle of champagne, it's not like I'm out there drinking crystal. There was a period in my life where that would have been very fabulous, but. I've got so many wrinkles for that now. <laughs> so, so we think about we think about that. This, this is what we call the ecstasy. And I would imagine that each one of you who's here now and each person that devotes themselves to the spiritual path, practices yoga more than once or two times in their life, has here or there experienced the ecstatic immersion with God, you could say, with the divine, with source, with oneness. You've experienced that, and that's what draws you back. And instinctively, you know that there's some truth there that's not present when you're driving the car, when you're paying your taxes, when you're, you know, paying your phone bill or calling the bank, right? You know that that shouldn't be the essence of who you are because you've tasted an elixir that is transcendent of this material world. And yet here we are. And we still, you know, have to go around and do things. So the mistake that many people make is that 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 ecstasy is the end, right? That that ecstasy is the goal and that once you've tasted it once, that now you're there. And I've seen many very, um, uh, sort of very fiery and determined spiritual practitioners think that the purpose of the spiritual path is to maintain the ecstasy of oneness at all times. I would say that that's quite a mistake. Of, of of what we should assume from ourselves in our everyday lives you have to experience that because that one experience of of the ecstatic self the oneness that's underneath all things that will change you forever you will be different you will look into the eyes of another being and you will recognize their capacity for that same experience you'll recognize their intrinsic worth because you've experienced your own but then what you know so then what that's what a lot of people say. So Jack Kornfield is one of um, my one uh, amazing Buddhist teacher and really one of the I think the leaders of our um, senior uh, spiritual teachers in the world right now. He has a book that's titled After the Ecstasy, The Laundry. Yeah. So it's still waiting for you, these buckets of laundry. And you could consider the laundry being anything from, again, paying your taxes to calling the bank to cleaning your clothes and sweeping the floor and or buying an airplane ticket and, you know, cleaning the dishes and all those sorts. In order the ordinary perfunctory functions of daily life. These don't go away just because you've tasted an elixir of the spirit. It's not like now you're I Dream of genie and you can just bobble your head and then poof, the dishes are done. I mean, I would personally really enjoy that. But we're pretty darn close with the dishwasher. You know, I mean... We're pretty darn close with that. So what is the lesson of the path and how does it translate into the laundry? So here we are, we understand the ecstasy, we understand the melting of I, we understand the immersion that is the true goal of the yoga to break the bonds and the bondages and the chains that prevent us from experiencing oneness, that prevent us from true compassion, for understanding empathy and action that is necessitated once we experience our connection with all things, once we're beyond the separation of limited eye. Then what? Well, then we have the laundry. Then we have daily life. Then we have how we interact in our moment-to-moment life. This does not go away. And the idea that you, just because you've experienced an immersive state of bliss once or twice, that you'll never be upset or angry or sad or depressed or dejected or anxious or injured or hurt or sick ever in this particular experience called life is a spiritual bypass that seems to say that the promise of the spiritual path is that you'll never experience pain that's not the promise of the spiritual path let me be absolutely clear on that the promise of the spiritual path is peace peace beyond pleasure and pain not that you will never experience pain again not that you will never be injured not that you will never be sick not that you will never experience loss and grief, but that you will be able to find a peace somewhere in the midst of all that. And it's a small promise, but it's a life-changing one, because it changes your paradigm entirely. We spend our lives, when we are identified with I, searching for pleasure and pain. Our, searching for pleasure, we don't always search for pain, but the awesome people who do, actually, right? <laughs> so... So we spend our lives in the cage of I, searching for pleasure and running from pain. And we search for things that bring us pleasure. We run away from things which we identify as causing us pain. And then we're trapped in this cycle. And this cycle, when it defines our material existence, has the immediate repercussion of creating more chains, creating more identification, moving us further away from a peaceful center. Think about your practice. When you first came to the yoga practice, I know I was interested in how cool the yoga poses looked. I don't know if any of you are still on that kind of stage where the poses look cool, but all you have to do to rid yourself of that is keep practicing. And then at some moment, it's a little bit like any relationship. You know, if you start off in the relationship, new partner, they look cool for a little while. And then at some moment, you know, then their veneer starts to fall off and you realize, you know, that they come with all sorts of sounds and smells as well. And, um, you know, then the veneer gets it's broken off and then and in the same way the practice happens and so the reason I want to bring you back to that is in the beginning we all start a yoga practice and we think it's about getting that pose we think it's about you know getting more postures going deeper in the body or we think it's about feeling good we think if you remember uh, one of one of the most transformative experiences of the yoga practice is having a teacher give you a hands-on assist and I remember when I was first starting to teach that I, I, I realized that there were some times that, that that I would fall into the trap of the yoga teacher and I would identify with I am a yoga teacher and I need to provide a particular service to the student in order so that they come back and that I can continue to teach and continue to be a yoga teacher. So then I would fall into this kind of trap. And then what I realized is that there were some students who really wanted the hands-on assist, not necessarily because they needed the help, but because it just felt good. It was almost like a meaningful massage and then it was almost like you know a mini feel-good moment and then they would say things to me like that was really yummy that was really juicy can you do that again and it, it took me a very long time to be able to say no to that Because I I remember operating from this perspective of, I'm afraid that if I say no, then they're not gonna get what they want, their pleasure that they've identified with, this is what yoga is, they're a yoga student, this is what they get, and then I'm not delivering that. And I thought that I would lose all my students, that no one would come to class anymore if I didn't provide these particular type of, um, you know, sensory experience. But I realized that some of them, they couldn't continue down this path because my actions were further accentuating an attachment to a particular type Type of pleasure, and we're furthering the bondage of the I, right? I deserve to be treated this way because I paid for this class. And then again, we have that experience. So You need to treat me in this way because I've showed up in this way. And then instead of that, well, what are we doing here, right? Honestly, I love massage. I really do. I, I love massage. And I would probably be annoyed if in the middle of a massage, uh, my massage therapist was like, you know, I think that now we need to break the bonds of the I, And I would be like, really, can you just continue with the shoulder rub? You know, but in the yoga class, what we have to understand, the reason why I'm telling you this, is not that I'm not going to give you any assists or anything like that, the reason I'm telling you this is that so you understand why you're here. That you're here to break those bonds of I and then to operate in the world with greater consciousness, with greater mindfulness. So that the, the key to unlocking a peaceful life is to use those experiences of ecstasy to be grounded in the action that's needed of you and demanded of you in the real world. So there's very often what happens is those lofty states are used as a bypass to 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 face to avoid facing the often gritty and unhappy and unjust realities in the world so if we think about this if we're not honest enough to be able to face our own pain to be able to sit with our own discomfort to be able to notice when things you know, come around and we have a reaction or things annoy us in the environment, then we're not strong enough to face those same discomforts in the world around us. So there's something that happens when we get attached to pleasure. And this is the reinforcement pattern that I chose to break as a teacher and I chose to, really, I chose to break in my own life as a student is that the idea and the attachment that my practice should always feel good whether that's meditation, or whether that is a yoga practice, to break the attachment, my practice should always feel good. It shouldn't. Your practice should not always feel good. Your meditations, if you do a meditation practice, your meditation should not always feel peaceful. Sometimes you sit there, and I had a meditation like this this morning, uh, where I've just sat there, and my mind was unstable, and I couldn't bring myself into a place of calm. And no matter how much I tried to bring my mind into a state of mindfulness, I was just thinking about things, and not anything really particular, really just useless things. Like, emails that I wanted to write a little bit later that I could have delayed thinking about for half an hour or so and you know this is various other thoughts about what type of food I was going to eat after meditation and I I mean things you don't need to be thinking about so 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 many people quit the practice because they come to the practice and then they start off with I don't want to meditate I can't meditate because my mind is not calm I can't do my yoga practice anymore because it doesn't feel good. I'm injured now. I have to modify all the poses. I used to be able to jump back, now I have to walk back. I used to be able to put my leg behind my head, but I can't do it anymore. I tripped and fell and my ankles sprained, so I can't, you know, I, I can't do it. I have to modify everything so I just won't come because it doesn't feel good. I don't like that teacher anymore because that teacher is not giving me the assists that I want or the poses that I want. That teacher is telling me that I need to do better, you know? And unfortunately, some people stop practicing. I hope none of you who are here today, none of you who are listening will ever stop practicing for those reasons. So if you wake up in the morning and your body hurts and you practice, you come to practice and your body still hurts and maybe you didn't experience any relief, I hope that you develop the seeds of peace amidst that struggle. Maybe not on that practice. Maybe it takes you 10 more times, 20 more times to get on the mat and face your pain. But I will tell you that there is something incredibly liberating about being willing to sit with all your pain you know because we have pain you know if you think you don't then i honestly think we're delusional i have a lot of pain that i sit with physically sometimes emotionally very often and if you're not willing to sit with that that's because we are identified with some other I, and you're operating i shouldn't feel this pain really you know Why not? Because this is a condition of doing the laundry, right? This is a condition of doing the laundry of our mind, doing the laundry of our body. I'd like you to take that paradigm and apply it to the practice today and apply it to your life today and really every day and notice yourself and notice your reactions and you don't need to make a big operation to change and sort of be positive all the time. That's its own form of spiritual bypassing. That's its own form of false positivity. The path of yoga is real and admits pain when pain is there and admits injustice when injustice is in the world and sees the places where we are lacking and sees the places where we we need to work and at the same time is willing to hold it all and say okay okay this is what it is i'm in pain and my body hurts i've got sniffles and i feel like i've got a flu i can't tell you how many times at least once a week somebody from somewhere in the world writes me a message and says i have the flu or i have the sniffles i have a cold um i can't practice anymore and I think, no, you've got to practice. Even if you're sniffling and you're blowing your nose, just put the tissues directly next to your practice. And I mean, maybe maybe it is useful to practice at home during those times, um, just to, for, you know, health of the community. But, um, but, but, but continue to do your practice. And don't wait for the perfect opportunity because it's now, it's now or it's never. There's no promise of tomorrow, right? So the mindset that I want you to experience today and every day in your practice and in your life is that is to embrace both the ecstatic moments of oneness and the embodied moments of temporality. The embodied moments when you have to do the laundry, and to really make your peace with the inevitable fluctuation between, sometimes there will be bliss and sometimes there will be discomfort. But what changes is your reaction to both so that you don't try to perpetually experience bliss or perpetually run away from the pain and the discomfort so that you carry a sense of peace, a transcendent peace through both of those experiences. And in this way, I think we're equipped to actually be a force of change in the world. You know? We're equipped to actually uh, rehabilitate our, our own personal traumas and potentially to do work on larger scale societal traumas as well. Okay, we're gonna start off with a short meditation and this is the first place we'll apply those tools to. And when we sit in the meditation, the idea is to not change your posture. And why do we not change the posture? Well, because we're not looking for pleasure. So I like to think about the meditation as sort of choose your torture, you know, (laughs) choose the position that is going to provide the least discomfort, but then accept that even that will be uncomfortable. So I recommend usually not to sit in lotus or half lotus position because unless lotus position is really easy for you which means like you grew up sitting in lotus and you just do it automatically and you feel you can have no pain when you cross your feet in the lotus position then what happens is within about three minutes the pain in the ankles begins to be so severe so you're just forced to change your positions i really really recommend just any comfortable seated position i usually sit like this On the rare occasion that I do attempt to figure out if I want to try the lotus position, I regret it every single time. also can't open a bottle. (laughs) Let's try that one. Good. Now, your hands. I usually like to rest the hands on my knees. If you want to turn the palms up, you can do that as well. Another... Common place to rest the hands is just clasped over each other toward the center. You can also interlock the fingers. You can just leave the hands directly down. There's really no particular thing that happens with the hand position, but I can guarantee you that it's not going to be comfortable after a period of time. So if your hands start to get hot or sweaty or clammy, and you decide this was a bad move where I placed my hands, unfortunately, just accept it. All right. And then I will tell you this straight up from the beginning if your feet fall asleep there's no risk of injury or damage to the body so please do not change your position if your feet are falling asleep I'll give you this very simple direction observe that your feet have fallen asleep period that's it just observe my feet are asleep make no change and then if anything, you can become mindful of your reactions towards your feet falling asleep, for example. And now I think I, I'm getting a blood clot in my big toe and you know I think I have poor circulation and I have a very unique medical condition. So therefore, I should definitely be allowed to move my feet. If you do actually have a medical condition like that, please do move your foot. But uh, it's very rare um, that that would happen. So, uh, right, I'm giving you this pep talk so that when you meet those thoughts in your mind, You won't be unsurprised. Right, have we all found our comfortable position? Good, and again, I like a cross-legged position and not lying down because if we lie down during meditation, sleep really is coming quite soon. Okay, when you're ready, you can allow your eyes to close. notice the sensation of your breath moving in and out of the body as it moves in and out notice the depth the rhythm and the pace of your breath And then to give your mind an anchor, a place to focus, bring your attention inside the nose, along the upper lip, around the rim of the nostrils, around your nose, just this area of attention. Notice the place where inhalation and exhalation make contact with your body only on this small area. You might notice that the breath passes on the right or left side. You might notice that you feel the breath more on the upper lip or inside the nostrils. You might notice that that place changes from inhalation to exhalation. You might notice that the breath is also kind of hard to feel. It's as though you know you recognize that you're breathing in and out, but It's hard to feel, just focus. Bring the mind there and even if it's so subtle so that it's barely there, yet still let the mind gently pick up all the sensations of the breath. If you have a very hard time focusing on the breath, you might find yourself saying in As you breathe in and out, as you breathe out, As you bring your attention into greater awareness of your breath, you may notice some other things. Perhaps the temperature. Breath is warm or cool. Perhaps the depth. Perhaps the breath is deep or shallow, somewhere in between. You might find your breath is heavy, so you feel you find sort of labored inhalation and exhalation, accelerated breath. Or you may find the breath is deep and steady, rhythmic. You may feel congested, so it may be hard to breathe. You may find lightness in the breath. Bringing the mind into awareness on the breath is the first exercise in equanimity, an equal balanced mind, an experience of peace making peace with the reality of your experience without needing it to be in any particular way. So if the breath is deep, you remain equanimous and observe the breath is deep without generating any attachments towards a deep breath. If the breath is short and shallow, you observe my breath is short and shallow without generating any attachment or aversion towards a short, shallow breath. If you notice your mind wandering away, drifting towards other thoughts, no matter what those thoughts are, whether they're judgments about your breath, whether they're judgments about the environment, yourself, inner commentary of any type, images that roll through the mind screen, memories, projections, Whatever the mind suddenly caught in a little spin or a big spin, just observe that the mind is focused somewhere other than the breath, and then ask it to come back inside the nostrils, along the upper lip, around the rim of the nostrils, inside the nose, even if you find it difficult to feel the breath, just try anyway. See what arises when you bring your attention to rest on this small area of attention. If you notice there are some emotions that seem to bubble up to the surface, you find yourself feeling frustrated, claustrophobic, anxious, angry, self-judgmental, or you find yourself experiencing positive emotions, the experience of ecstasy, bliss, joy, happiness. Whatever emotion arises, observe. Happiness is present. Observe, anger is present. Be inquisitive about the emotion, but do not fight for it. Try to make it stay. Do not fight against it and push it away. Just observe, observe that that emotion is present. Be inquisitive about the experience of the emotion. Perhaps you experience when anger is present, there is heat in the body. Perhaps you experience when bliss is present, there is lightness in the body. Perhaps you experience shaking, trembling, sharp pain or other sensations in the body that may or may not be correlated with an emotion. When that arises, observe that too. If the body is hot, observe the body is hot. If you observe there is anger present, then observe there is anger present. If you notice your feet have fallen asleep, just observe my feet have fallen asleep. Make no change. Make no reaction. Make no action towards, no fight against. Remain equanimous. It is the tool of equanimity that is the path of peace, the pure observational mind. When your mind is full of your experience, intimately connected to the reality of the moment to moment experience within the sensory world of the field of the body, then there is freedom. Freedom is peace. Remember, inside the nostrils, along the upper lip, no need to control, force, or manipulate the breath. No right, no wrong way to breathe, just the breath. In as you breathe in. Out as you breathe out. let whatever arises, let whatever happens simply happen with no desire to change, no desire to manipulate and no identification with what is arising. So there is no sense of permanent self within any of the fields of sensations not the breath, not the body, not the emotions, and not the thoughts. However your breath naturally unfolds, let it be. Do not try to control the breath. Do not breathe in any particular way. Send the message of okayness to however the breath wants to unfold by simply noting in as you breathe in and out as you breathe out. And if you notice yourself trying to control the breath wondering, am I breathing in properly? I should be taking a deeper breath. Just for a moment, recognize the desire to control and then observe without any judgment. Notice the feeling, the sensation and then see if you can let it go. Just return to the natural breath. In, as you breathe in. Out, as you breathe out. With a few moments of cultivated mindfulness, bring your attention into the heart center. So just drop your mind to the space behind the sternum. Without any desire for a particular feeling, just occupy the space for a moment. In the same way that the effort of mindfulness training is balanced with a heart centered meditation, the ecstatic moments of bliss balanced by the everyday ordinariness of life, these two sides of the eternal and the temporal walk the line of existence of our life. So now bring the attention to the heart center. Whatever presence you feel in the heart, let that be there. Ending every meditation with what's called metta practice or loving kindness for a moment inside the heart. Offer yourself a simple prayer. May I be peaceful. May I experience lasting happiness. May I be immersed in unconditional love. May I be free from the bondage of conditioned existence. May I experience true freedom, true liberation. May I come out of my misery. In the center of the heart, there's this connection Outward. So for a moment, be aware of all beings in this room and feel your connection together here. From wherever we are in our life today, we all have the same spark, the same quest for the eternal. May we all be peaceful, May we all find lasting happiness. May our minds be clear and filled with wisdom. May our hearts be full and filled with love. May our bodies be restored and healed. May we find true freedom, true liberation, And now for a moment in the heart center, think of someone whom you love dearly, someone who, whose smile brings you pure joy. It could be a family member, a partner, child. It could also be someone who you think of as a hero, a teacher, or it can also be a pet or a small animal or an animal that you love dearly, another being Think of them in your heart for a moment. May they be happy, truly happy. May they be peaceful. Offer them unconditional love. See them finding the way out of their misery, out of their suffering into true liberation. Through the channel of the heart, expand outward, include an awareness of all beings in this city, human and non-human, visible and invisible. And for a moment, open your heart to experience the suffering of all beings here in this city, no matter where you look, in which house, no matter in which car, in which place of living, you will find beings trapped in the cycle of suffering, chasing pleasure and running from pain. You will find them lost and searching, caught in their misery. So now in the channel of the heart, include your awareness, the sameness, the oneness, all beings in this city, all beings, human and non-human, in this country, the same urge for happiness, people who are suffering in their bodies, their minds, their hearts, how many broken hearted, How many lost and searching, countless. In the whole world, in every city, in every country, in every home, in every language, in every body, human and non-human, visible and invisible, the sentient beings, the creatures, the life energy of the earth itself, May we all be peaceful. May we all be truly happy. May we all come out of our misery. May we all find true freedom. May our hearts be full of love. May our minds be clear and filled with wisdom. May our bodies be healed and restored. All our friends, none our enemies. May our world be a just place. May all beings throughout time and space, including myself, be peaceful, be happy, Be filled with love. Bring your hands gently together at the center of the heart. your body, back inside, the breath, the heartbeat, the warmth, or the coolness of the body, and then gently let your hands rest down, your eyes open,
1: good. Thanks for tuning in to another inspiring talk and guided meditation by Kino. If you're interested in practicing more with her, she'll be leading a Mysore-style Ashtanga Yoga retreat in March here at Miami Life Center with morning Mysore practices and afternoon workshops. So if you're interested in learning more about that, you can head over to our website, www.miamilifecenter.com. And registration is open for that now, and space is limited. So sign up today. And if you just want to stay in touch, you want to stay up to date with other events and other podcast episodes that we're releasing, you can follow us on Instagram at Miami Life Center. And we'd love to hear from you. If you have any feedback or any suggestions for future podcast episodes that you'd like to hear about, let us know. Talk to us on Instagram, or you can send us an email at info at Center.com. We hope to hear from you, and we hope to see you someday soon in Miami. Namaste.